Some of you already know that uh, I've got a, a, another book coming out, which um, is actually a rewrite of the last book. It's just something that needed to be repackaged and, and retitled and reconfigured and kind of reimagined. Um, and it'll be coming out probably around the end of the month. Uh, there's, there's always glitches in doing this stuff, but uh, that's what we're shooting for. And um, the book is called Daring to Think Again. And uh, the subtitle is Restoring Jesus' Original Challenge to the Faith We Think We Know. And um, so you can tell by the, the, the title that uh, something's going on here that hopefully is going to tweak the way that we look at our faith, tweak the way that we look at following Jesus and what Jesus' message is. And, of course, it begs the, the question, what is Jesus' original challenge? What was it that he was challenging us? What was it, was it that he was challenging his first followers to do that is recorded in the Gospels? And more importantly, if this really is his challenge, if this really is his statement of his way, then we need to know and we need to accept that challenge if we really want to follow him. And Jesus said that his way was the only way to the Father. There's no other way. And so this challenge, to me, just stands really, really right at the forefront of of everything that we're talking about. The hardest thing to do in life is to answer Jesus' challenge. This challenge cuts right to the core of everything that we are. And it's even harder for us here in the West. Because in the West, in the modern West, we have sort of made knowledge our God the acquisition of knowledge. We think somehow if we layer up enough knowledge on top of knowledge, it's kind of like the Tower of Babel in a way. We're going we're gonna to get to God. We're going we're gonna to find our salvation simply by understanding theology more, by coming to more and more perfect understanding of church, of scripture, of practice, and so on and so forth. And so this challenge of Jesus cuts right at the root of that kind of thinking, that kind of worldview. And his way is coming from a completely different direction. And the challenge is preparing us to be able to accept a completely different direction. And so what I thought we'd do over the next few weeks is to take portions of the book and talk about them in here and and see if some of the themes can come through. Because this has been what has been absolutely essential to me in terms of learning how to follow Jesus more and more perfectly. How do we do that? And what I thought I'd do right now out of one of the chapters is, uh, is tell you a story. Some of you have heard the story before, but maybe there'll be some new twists and turns. How many of you have in here have been skydiving? Yeah, we got one. That's it? Only one other crazy person? Yeah. Did you do a tandem jump or did you do a... Wait, wait, where? Nice. Linda. <laughs> so for all the rest of you who haven't been skydiving and you haven't heard this story, put your seatbelts on. Buckle up. What I did was I, I signed up for what they call an accelerated freefall, uh, or AFF. What that means is, is that other than, uh, unlike a tandem jump where you're strapped to your jump master, they're on your back, and you go down together, right? 
you're going to go out alone in accelerated free fall, but you're going to have two jump masters, experienced jumpers, divers, on either side of you holding onto your leg straps. And so the idea is that you count one, two, three, and you all go out together. And then they're with you for the, for the free fall portion. And then as soon as you pull and you, uh, you open up your sail, you're on your own after that. And so accelerated free fall. So what we did was go into the Paris Valley Skydiving Center early, early in the morning and uh, crunching on the gravel in the parking lot, heading over to two single-wide mobile homes that served as their, their offices and their, their kind of welcome center uh, for, for new divers. And uh, go in there, and they've got a big screen TV and a bunch of uh, chairs lined up, and we all sit in the chairs. And, you know, <laughs> everybody's nervous because, hey, we're first-time jumpers, and this is what we're going to do. And everyone's kind of looking at each other, and, you know, there's these kind of hushed conversations and kind of laughter that's coming out a little bit too high-pitched, you know, and that sort of thing. And they sit us down in front of this television set, and they play a video of a lawyer all dressed in his three-piece suit behind a desk telling us about what it is we're really going to do and all of the things that could happen from death to dismemberment to falling into power lines into water and all the things that could happen and how we're holding the Paris Valley Skydiving Center completely harmless for anything that would happen to us. And then he explains that someone is going to be passing out in a waiver of, of any sort of claim for us or our heirs. <laughs> That's always a little bit sobering. Um, that would want to hold the Paris Valley Skydiving Center um, harmful or harm, you know, liable for anything that should happen. Then they take a video camera and they turn it on us, and they videotape each one of us reading this waiver to the camera. They are just tying this thing up one way or another, and then we have to sign on camera as well. We all walked out of those double wides a little quieter than we went in. I'll tell you that. The next thing was to go to the classrooms, which were at least in real buildings. And we walk into the classroom for the AFFers. It was eight hours on the ground. So it was an entire day of training on the ground before we went up and did our jump at the end of the, at the, end of the day. And I'm sure that our instructor never got tired of watching the faces as we all walked in because he only had one leg. And he wasn't trying to hide it. He had... Jeans cut off on one side, exposing not a prosthetic that was trying to look like a human limb. It was just like a spring-loaded pogo stick on one side. You know, all he needed was the parrot and the eye patch, and he was good to go. It was, you know, and he, he was just watching us, and everybody is just kind of freaking out. And the first thing he says to us, I just want you to know I did not lose my leg skydiving. Everybody relax. And then he proceeds to go into the actual training. And it was class after class during the day with a lunch break. But they're teaching us everything about skydiving. They're teaching us about the aerodynamics of it, what's going on, that we're going to be jumping from 12,500 feet, which is just over two miles, that, um, that we are going to have a chute on our back that has a reserve that was packed by a certified packer and sealed with a little lead seal with their number on it so that if anything failed on that reserve, and I think the way he put it, it's their reputation but your life, comforting, right? But you do have that reserve shoot, right? They talked to us about the aerodynamics of a falling leaf. Have you ever watched a leaf fall from a tree? You know, leaves naturally are in a cup shape. It is aerodynamically impossible for the leaf to fall cup down 
The air will always catch it and turn it over. So it's always going to fall this way. So if you jump out of a plane and you're in a tumble and you don't know which end is up, which is the ground, which is the sky, all you do is you just open up, spread eagle, and arch your back into a falling leaf shape and you'll automatically right yourself and you'll be going belly down. And so they taught us about that. They taught us about the gear, the altimeter that would be on our chest. They taught us about the circle of awareness because when you jump out of an airplane, it's like all the alarm buzzers and bells are going off. Your dashboard is lighting up, right? And your brain is sending all these chemicals through your body because it's danger, Will Robinson, right? And so how do you maintain your emotional stability through that? Stopping and going through the circle of awareness. You look first at the horizon. You look at your right hand. You look at your altimeter. You look over your right shoulder. You jump master. You feel your legs behind you and you come all the way around. And you do that to ground yourself both emotionally and in space where you're at. They taught us about that. They taught us about all the things that could go wrong. What do you do if you land in power lines? What do you do if you land in a tree? What do you do if you land in water? What happens if your main chute fails? You know, how do you get to your reserve? What happens if you get tangled up in your lines after the first shoot? Basically, they just said, don't let that happen. Because <laughs> basically, you're cooked. If you're tied in the chute and you can't get the reserve out, there's really not much you can do about that one. All of this stuff going forward, and all the time during the day, there's this feeling in the pit of my stomach, right? It's down there. You know, I know what it is I'm doing. I'm not thinking about it right now, but it's there. And during the day, it's kind of moving its way up further and further up my chest and in my throat. Then it's time to go out and, and, uh, and get suited up. So we go out to this big barn, basically, and hanging all over our jumpsuits and helmets and goggles and backpacks and, and everything. So, um, you know, you're out there and you're looking for a jumpsuit that fits you and getting a helmet, getting your goggles. And then Peg Leg came over and helped me on with my uh, with my chute and leg straps and all that. So now we're all bundled up and we're walking out to the airstrip. And here comes the airplane, you know, from its last uh, jump. So it's empty now. I remember the name on it was the King Air. And it was just one of these silver... I suppose cargo type planes with a fat fuselage, you know, kind of the things you see, you know, in a movie with drug runners going through jungles, you know, just one of those big propeller planes. And there was nothing inside except just the bare fuselage, no chairs, no seats, no nothing, just open seams and rivets. In fact, the seams were at that high off the ground, about an inch and a half, so you had to step over them. And uh, there were so many people going because you think about it, each free faller had at least two jump masters and possibly a videographer with them if they paid for that. So there could be up to four people going for each person jumping. So we were packed in like sardines. And basically you sat on the ground on the metal with your legs spread and the person in front of you was sitting between your legs with their pack against your chest and it was just rows all the way down the fuselage there, just packed in. You know, So here we are packed in and the Engines are whining up to speed, and we take off, and we're getting up to our, our, our target height. And now that feeling is right about here in my throat. It's like, am I really going to do this? Oh, my gosh, what did, I, what did I sign up for? What have I done? And, and you're, you're waiting, and the, the, the plane is banking into position. The cold metal is seeping into your backside. And I remember the uh, late afternoon sunlight just moving across the side of the plane with the little shapes of the windows. You know, as the plane was banking, these, these little window shapes were moving across. And I'm looking across at all these helmets in front of me. 
And the thought crossed my mind about reading when I was a kid about D-Day, the D-Day invasion and the paratroopers that went in. And, you know, just reading those stories, I thought I understood what those boys must have been feeling over wartime France in the middle of the night. And now I'm sitting here with this feeling in my throat thinking, you know, I'm jumping out of this plane into the California sunlight with everything on my back and everything on the ground designed to save my life. Those boys were jumping into blackness of night, into the knives and the guns of the enemy, where everything was designed to kill them. And I just realized I knew nothing. And now that I knew more, I realized I knew less about what someone else may have gone through in similar circumstances. And then I hear my name called. Okay, it's my turn. So I get up and I'm stepping over bodies and between seams and trying to get to the door. And the door was just a hole in the fuselage, just, an, just, a, just a space. You know, there was no actual door. And I get up there and I'm holding onto the edges and I'm looking down at two miles of air. And you know, if you've been flying, the ground, but you may not have experienced the ground from an open doorway with the wind in your face looking down at it. And it just looks flat. It looks dimensionless. It looks like a painting. You know, it doesn't even look real. And the jump masters came up beside me, and so we were, ready, ready, okay. So now we're counting, one, two. And I swear it was like one of those things, okay, did we mean to go on three or after three? And one, two, and I go out and I realize I'm all alone. (laughs) I messed up the count somehow. And there was that feeling that all of a sudden there's this, this air in my face, right? But I couldn't breathe because I couldn't exhale. It was like everything was in and I couldn't breathe out. And there was this thought, oh my God, I really did this. You know, I set in motion a series of events that's going to end at the ground one way or another. You know, they taught us about terminal velocity. When you get into a falling leap position, the air pressure and the gravity will equalize at 120 miles an hour or thereabouts. So you will never go any faster than 120 in that position. You can tuck in and dive and go faster, but here it's 120. So I was going to hit the ground one way or another, you know, 120 screaming miles an hour or with a nice flare and just stepping into the, the, the ground. And then I'm thinking all these things and it's spinning in my head. And here come my jump masters. I remember their faces just kind of lowered into view. You know, it was the weirdest thing. I'm all alone and all of a sudden, and they're shouting at me all the instructions and everything to do. We go through the circle of awareness. We look at the altimeter. We're checking this. We're checking that. And then we went and went through that. They said, okay, now enjoy the ride. Now I expected going down in free fall was going to be like when you'd crest the hill on a roller coaster and you feel everything go up in your throat and you feel that G force. I thought it was going to be that all the way down, but it's not. As soon as you hit terminal velocity, everything just equalizes. And everybody's falling in unison. So it's like I'm just sitting talking to these two guys as if I was sitting across a table with tea. I mean, it was just, just except we have 120 an hour, mile an hour wind in our face. But there was no cue that we were moving. There was no clue that we were moving. Except I remember looking at the ground and focusing on one thing on the ground. And it was just slowly getting bigger. And that was the only cue that I had visually that I was still falling. Otherwise, it just felt like I was hovering in space. Enjoy the ride. And I'm looking around and I'm looking at the scenery. And it was just this amazing feeling. And before I know it, they're screaming in my ear again, pull, pull, pull. I look down at the altimeter, a big old thing on my chest, and we're at 5,000 feet. 
So we, we fell for the first mile, and then we were going to pull. And so I pull my cord, and their, their, their faces just went, whew, just that quick, just down, gone. Actually, I was being slowed, and they continued at the same pace because they went ahead and free fell further to get on the ground before me. But bam, they're gone. And I look up as I was taught to do, and there's my sail, orange and perfect and filled with air. You know, the little cell things that are, it's a, it's a wedge is what it looks like, not the round shoots anymore. And I go up and I find my toggles. They're the, the, the two parts that you bring down. And that's what you can turn with. These things are so maneuverable, you can't believe it. You put one toggle down and you can actually turn on the end of one of your wings or the other way and turn. They're so maneuverable. And so what I was supposed to do at this point was to find the airstrip and find the windsock and see which way the wind was blowing. And the idea was to come in, make the approach with the wind, the first one, and as you turn around and then make your final approach against the wind. And so that was my task now. And everything just went completely silent. It was just like the, the rush and the roar of free fall suddenly was just quiet. And it was just peaceful. Now I'm being blown by the wind and it's just peaceful. I will have this one image until my dying day. I look down at my boots. You know, I'm kicking my feet in my boots. And there's nothing beneath them but a mile of air. It was just the weirdest sensation who knew that that was going to be the one image that I bring with me is looking at my boots and seeing nothing but air down there, you know. So anyways, I, I made my approach. I did my thing. And the only thing I did wrong was flare too soon. Flaring is putting both toggles down at the same time and it breaks you. And I flared too soon so that I had no forward momentum by the time I touched down on the ground. And the wind pulled me backwards, you know, as it'll do. But peg leg was right there. And he grabbed me and he pulled in my chute for me. And it was a successful jump. And I got my certificate and everything was really cool. Why am I telling you all of this? Here's the thing. All day long on the ground, as I was being trained, as I was going through this, I was feeling this fear in the pit of my stomach. And it was rising as I was getting closer and closer to the time. As I'm putting on the jumpsuit, as I'm walking out to the king air, as I'm getting up to altitude, that thing is rising and rising in me until I'm standing at the door. You know, my fingerprints are probably still there, etched in the metal of the king air, hanging on and looking down and thinking, am I really going to do this? But once I pushed off, other than that initial shock, that initial hyperventilation, once it settled in, it was just like in my brain, I have set in motion a series of events that are going to end on the ground one way or another. And there's nothing I can do about that except what I was trained to do and eventually to enjoy the ride. And all the fear went away. There was no more fear. As long as I was clinging to the doorway, as long as I had a choice a decision to make, I guess in my mind I could fail. I guess in my mind I could chicken out. I guess in my mind I could be embarrassed or humiliated. But once I jumped, there was none of that. It was just enjoy the ride, allow yourself to go. And it was such an interesting experience to realize that it was the choice itself, it was having the choice that kept the fear alive. But as long as I let go and started the free fall, then it was just do what I'm told to do. do. Do what I know to do and enjoy the ride. It was amazing. And all of us falling together in that, in that sort of peaceful. Here's where this is going. All of us, every single one of us is a skydiver. We're all free falling right now in this room together. 
But since we're all falling at the same time, at the same rate of speed, we don't feel the falling. We don't feel the sense of motion. But ever since the moment of our birth, ever since we are pushed out of our mother's fuselage, so to speak, right? We've been free-falling ever since, and we will continue to fall till the moment of our death. We are falling. The ground is coming up at us. We can't see it. I mean, I suppose the analogy is more like we began free-falling at the moment of birth in a completely black night sky. We don't know at what altitude we started. We don't know where the ground is. We can't see the ground, and yet we're free-falling. But if we think in any way, shape, or form, sitting here right now, that we're still holding on to the doorway of the airplane, that we still have a choice to make as to whether we're going to go or not, we have fear. We have the sense that we could fail. We're afraid. We can't enjoy the ride. But that plane is long since gone. It's, it's home now. It's in the hangar. Pilot's having dinner, right? We can't go back up into that airplane. We can't make the choice that we didn't have to make in the first place. As far as we know, none of us asked to be born, but here we are, free-falling through life. What are we going to do? We can't choose whether we jump or not. That's already happened. All we can choose now is the quality of the fall. We can choose how we fall. We can choose how we land. That's up to us. But the rest of the facts of the dive are just what they are. And this is something that is so important, so important to understand. Most of us live as if we're still in the plane, still clinging to the door, that we still have a choice. And we're trying to pray away the fear of jumping into the unknown. And what's our prayer? Oh, Lord, please put me back in the plane. (laughs) If we feel like we're starting to fall, please put me back in the plane. What are we asking for? We're asking God to change our circumstances. They're frightening. Take away the pain. Take this away. Paul praying to take away the thorn in his flesh. Whatever that was, we still don't know. But praying for that to be taken away. And if that doesn't work, what's the next prayer? Well, if you can't put me back in the plane, then please show me the ground. (laughs) Show me where it is so I can plan for it. Give me clarity. Give me something to go forward. Give me some wisdom, discernment. However we couch that prayer to make it sound virtuous, what we're looking for is a risk-free equation. We're looking for something that will take away the uncertainty and take away the fear. Show me the ground. We want clarity. There's a great story in um, Brandon Manning's book, Ruthless Trust, where he talks about John Kavanaugh, who was a uh, very well-known Jesuit, a priest, uh, ethicist, a writer, a professor, taught at a very prestigious school in the United States. And he had one of his, what, what, do, you want, what do you want to call them, bottom moments, hitting bottom, where he kind of burned out and, and just lost all sense of himself, didn't know what direction to go anymore. And in that angst that he was feeling, he decided to take a sabbatical And he went to India to spend three months working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta in her houses of the poor at the time. And so the first day there, he's walking across the the compound, and here comes Mother Teresa, a little four-foot-nothing. And uh, she greets him, hello and hello, and, you know, what can I do for you? And he says, well, please pray for me, Mother. And she says, sure, what shall I pray for? Pray that I might find clarity. There's that prayer, right? Show me the ground. 
pray, pray, you know, pray that I can find clarity. And she finally says, no, I won't do that. And of course, he's taken aback. You know, what do you mean? You know, Because clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to and need to let go of, she tells him. And then his response to her is, but you seem to have such clarity all the time. Looking at her, looking at this little woman who forged within the Catholic Church the ability for a woman to do missional work that she was doing, women didn't do that before her. And then to carve out that place in one of the worst areas and the worst places in the world and to continue to do that decade after decade, you know, with all of the challenges it faced, so sure-footed, like one of those goats that just jumps from rock to rock and, and knows exactly where it's going. This is what Mother Teresa looked like to John Kavanaugh, why he traveled thousands of miles to spend three months with her to try to find the clarity that he was lacking. And she just laughed at him and said, I don't have clarity. What I have is trust. I'll pray that you find trust. See, we think that clarity brings trust. We think that piling up more and more knowledge brings a certainty that will give us the sense of trust, that will give us the sense of being okay, that will overcome our fears. And that's not the way it works. Teresa is saying that from my point of view, I don't know any more than you do about the next step I take. But what I have done is essentially learn to fall with God. Learn to step out and just walk and see what happens, trusting, in my experience, that God is trustworthy and will be there. So from the outside looking in, she looks sure-footed as a goat. From the inside out, she is just walking blind like the rest of us but with a sense of serenity, with a sense of meaning and purpose and identity that only comes when you have accepted the fact that you're already falling and there's nothing you can do about it except how you're going to fall and how you're going to land. And so this is what Jesus' original challenge is all about. The original challenge of Jesus is to get us to the point where we will finally empty everything out and accept the fact that we're already falling. We're already in this completely vulnerable position. We can't control gravity any more than we can control anything in life. We are already falling. Gravity is taking its hold. And all we can do is choose how. As long as we think that we are in some kind of control, as long as we think that we can pile up enough knowledge that will give us some kind of mastery over the circumstances, mastery over gravity itself, we will continue to live like a closed fist. We will continue to live in that sense of fear. Jesus is telling us, you've got to let that go. My way to Father, the only way to Father, begins with the emptying begins with the unlearning. You have to be empty before you can be filled with something new, and you have to unlearn before you can learn something that's coming from a completely different direction that you've never experienced before. How does he articulate it? You take a look at Mark 10, starting at verse 17, and this is the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus. Jesus is setting out on a journey, and a man runs up to him and kneels before him and asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Well, why do you call me good, first of all? No one is good except God alone. But you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witnesses, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. 
And the young man says to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And Jesus knows that he's sincere. He knows that he's true because he looks at him and he, and he loves him. He felt a love for him and he says, One thing you do lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, the young man was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Sell everything that you have. Stop clinging to the door of the airplane. Let go of the illusions of some sort of control, whatever it happens to be, whether it is the zeros in your bank account, whether it is a status that you hold in society, whether it is your talent or your looks, some sort of ability that you have. Whatever it is that is your go-to, whatever it is that you cling to, your theology, your religion, your tribe, your nation, your political party, whatever it is that you're holding on to that gives you some sense of control over all the unknowns out there, over the ground that's coming up, let it go. Sell it. Give it to the poor and accept that you're already falling. Give yourself to gravity, if you will. Give yourself to the jump master who is training you, who has trained you, who told you that you could survive this thing, this skydive of your life, you know, and who gave you the parachute that's going to break your fall. Stop worrying that something is wrong. Stop worrying that there's something that you lack and just start enjoying the ride. Can you do that? Can you start the process of doing that? by preferring less the thing that you're holding on to and starting the process of letting it go so that something new can come in. There's a story in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 19 of Elijah, you know, the prophet. And he is just coming off his supreme victory at Mount Carmel. And do you remember that one in, in 1 Kings? Where all the prophets of Baal come and he comes alone all by himself and they're going to have a showdown and he's going to see which God is stronger. Because at this time, Ahab, Ahab, Jezebel, Isabel is the way it would be pronounced in, in Hebrew, the king and queen, they have already gone to the foreign gods. They have left Yahweh God. And so Elijah is there telling them where they're wrong and they have the showdown. And of course, Elijah wins. The, uh, the prophets of Baal, they cut up their ox and they're yelling from morning till noon for their God to send down the fire and consume the, uh, the sacrifice and all afternoon into early evening and nothing is happening. And so here's Elijah who builds an altar and builds a moat around the altar, fills the, altar with wa- fills the moat with water, prepares the ox on the altar, douses the ox and the wood and everything with water, just soaks it all down and then calls to Yahweh God and in an instant. Not only is the sacrifice consumed, but the altar itself, the water, the moat, everything gone. There's just a smoking crater there. This supreme victory of his in terms of how he related to God and how he understood God's power in the next moment is turned around because the queen then puts a hit out on him, a contract on his life. She says, at this time tomorrow you will be dead. And he runs into the wilderness. And notice he runs into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. There's that number again. The same number that Jesus went into the wilderness for. The same number that Noah was in the ark for. The same number that Moses was in the desert with his tribe for. This number that means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. He goes into the wilderness and in that time finds 
an emptying that takes place of everything that he thought he knew about himself, about his God. And he finds a cave and he lodges there. And when God comes to see him, first there's an earthquake, but he realizes God isn't in the earthquake. God's not in the big things. There's a fire that roars through. God's not in the fire. There's a wind that comes through. God's not in the wind. And he just remains at the back of the cave because he's been emptied out and something new is taking place. And then there's just this gentle blowing at the back of his neck. And he puts on his mantle and he goes out to meet his God. A change has taken place in him that was only engendered by an emptying first. Paul, in prison, in Philippians, awaiting his execution in Rome at the end of his life. Before, we talked about the fact that he was trying to pray for the thorn to be removed, for circumstances to be changed, so then he could enjoy his ride. But what does he say here at Philippians 4? I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul, at some point, between praying for the thorn and waiting for his death, made friends with life. He made friends with the way life really is. He accepted the terms of his falling, and he became content to fall with God, to enjoy the ride. Jesus' original challenge here is to sell everything that we possess. The instances throughout Scripture are over and over again. This motif, the church called it the Paschal Mystery. There's always a descent before the ascent on the other side. There's always the emptying before the filling, the unlearning before we learn anything new. There is no other way that we get to the Father but through the shape of this journey. Jesus said it over and over again in so many different ways. Unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother, your children, and even your own life. In other words, if you can't even step away from the tribe, the family, everything that supports you and girds you internally, not necessarily for real, Many of the followers left home and family to follow Jesus physically, but he's talking about an internal opening. If you can't do that, if you can't let go, sell even those possessions that are so dear to you, then you can't follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. Talking about forms and and, and functions of children and families, let that go. Come, follow me. If you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. You want to follow me? Then be prepared to pick up your cross daily. Accept what comes and follow me. Find out that you're already falling. He's challenging to accept that fact and engage the shape of this journey to push off, to accept the falling, to accept that submitted state. We keep coming back to that word. The submission of realizing I'm falling in this completely vulnerable and dependent way. I can't do anything except enjoy the ride if I realize who I'm falling with. This is the shape of the journey. This is it. This is what Jesus is telling us. That we will never understand his message until we travel as he traveled. We want to understand the message. 
But what Jesus is saying, the understanding, the trust, comes from following the shape of the journey. That's the only way to father. If you take a look here, just a little excerpt from the book. Hopefully this brings it home to you. Engaging the how, the way, of Jesus' medium, this way of living life, before we consider the what of his message intellectually, is the challenge that must be accepted first. How Jesus traveled, his medium, is the key to understanding the content of his message and not the other way around. We will never be able to follow where Jesus is ultimately leading unless we first see how he traveled, systematically clearing out anything standing in the way of his way. To those still seeking eternal life, that is, life that is eternally alive, Jesus' original challenge to sell everything and follow him is metaphor for the willingness to uproot everything we think we know that may stand in our way. But this is not a straightforward process. We don't know what stands in the way, so we must become willing to sell it all and descend into uncertainty for a time, just as Jesus did in the wilderness, just as Elijah did in the wilderness, just as Jesus did in the grave and over and over throughout his life. Jesus said he was the way, the medium, which which means for Jesus that the medium is the message. Just use words when necessary. It's the shape of the way that teaches. It is the emptying, what the New Testament calls in Jesus, the kenosis, that is what takes us into a new place with the Father. As long as we remain clinging to our airplane of choice, we talk about our drug of choice, but as long as we remain clinging to our airplane of choice, we are defined by fear. We have an illusion of control that we're clinging to. There really isn't any, but we have an illusion of control. And our journey really starts along this way of Jesus. The moment we accept the powerlessness of free fall. And from that position, all things become possible as we can begin to enjoy the ride. But still, there is that moment when you first throw all caution to the wind from that door in the airplane with your heart in your throat and you finally push off. What does that look like? I want to read you just the last couple paragraphs of this chapter. Can you remember being 10 years old? Okay? Put yourself in that position. 10 years old during the long, hot summers that seemed to go on forever between the books and clocks of school and before the big boy or girl pressures set in? Go there. Right now, in your mind's eye. Be 10 years old again in your swimsuit, the afternoon sun hot on your skin as you run around your friend's swimming pool. Add your shouts and squeals to all those around you. Add your energy and motion to the chaotic scene. Can you see it? The brilliant sunlight shimmering off the water, the colorful swimsuits and brown skin, the constant motion and water slopping over the sides. It's all there as you drink it in, watching the scene and becoming part of it as you run to the edge of the pool, turning to face away, your back to the water, Wet toes curling around the concrete lip turn white as you grip there, heels out over the water. You hold your arms out straight from shoulder height, sparkling drops clinging to you as you tilt your head back 
and close your eyes. Last time you looked, the pool was filled with shimmering blue water. Last time you looked, your friends all bobbed around the edges watching you with expectant smiles. You believe the water is still there, that the scene remains exactly as it did the last time you looked, and that the water will catch you and shock you and thrill you when you fall back into it. The last time you looked, you believed all this. You believe it now. But you won't know that your belief has turned to faith until you push down with your toes and feel your center of gravity shift backwards in that dizzy tilt and know that the line has been crossed, that there's no turning back, and you fall. Slowly at first, gaining speed through those heart-stopping moments as you wait for it to come, the cold, hard slap against your back, the sinking down into coolness, springing back up from the bottom to break the surface into sunshine and laughter as you shake your head, wipe your eyes, and scan the ring of faces around you. There is a breath, a moment filled with wide eyes and dripping noses. It's the moment you finally know, but won't recognize for some time that your faith has graduated to trust. It's the moment you break for the sides and yell to your friends over your shoulder, let's do it again. (laughs) When the things that so scare us become invigorating to us, when we can start to fall with style, then we know that we have accepted the falling and we've finally become enjoyers of the ride. That's what Jesus is after. And it starts by letting go. Stopping the clinging to our airplane of choice and pushing off and just letting it go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for falling with us. Thank you for creating the ride and allowing us to enjoy the ride. Help us to break through whatever we got to break through. Help us to be able to define the things that we're clinging to, to see them for what they are. To realize that we can live without them in a different way. And even if we're living with them, that we understand that they are tools for us to use and not life itself. Help us to see you in the falling to see you as our jump master right there, closer than our next breath, so that we can realize that everything really be, will be okay. Everything will be well. Father, thank you for being with us always, for the love that undergirds everything. Never let us forget. We can only do this because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.